Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us, and we'll get into today's guest. Welcome, folks, ladies and gentlemen and human beings. I'm very excited to share with you Chewy Chewy Tam, who is my guest today. She is the founder and director of Bayo Global, that specializes in international UX research. Chewy Chewy, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me here. Oh, I'm excited. I When I saw your profile, I was like, ooh, we're going to have lots of cool stuff to talk about. <laughs> from what I can see, your career progressed from UX and then all the way into the strategy. So you've seen that whole sort of strategy life cycle about that. And given that the world is becoming flatter, so to speak, and people are expanding into global markets, I'm really excited to hear what some of the things you've learned and what are some of the things you're seeing in the future. But why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. So yeah, like you say, I start off, actually my undergraduate was mechanical engineering and did a master in mass music technology. So that's nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. So yeah, I start off with UX, user experience and customer experience. And I kind of grow on that in terms of looking into international elements of that. And then now I kind of use that as a key thing to help businesses to kind of define their strategy based on the understanding about their customers and from the lens of their users and the context. So it means that any strategy or business decisions they make um, will be based on a full and holistic understanding of their users in different markets, but also the environment around them. Many years ago, actually, I wrote a book called International User Research, and it's many years ago I'm kind of thinking about updating it in a second version. Also, depending on the teams I work with, so the strategy could be on the product side, on the product strategy or marketing or partnership strategy, new market strategy, but basically any business-related decisions. And I sometimes also coach and be the sounding board for senior executives or management, mostly for people who are actually overseeing their global markets and trying to grow their international markets in specific region or specific country. Absolutely. And you work with some household names that we might know as well? Yeah, I work with them. Um, so my actually one of my main clients that I work very closely with internal team as well is Spotify. So I work with them for 
the last three and a half years and constantly with different teams, hence the different, which is great because it gave me insights in terms of how the whole operations work. And across, I think now we, I kind of cover over 20, 22 countries now with them, some new markets and some kind of existing mature markets as well. I also work with Netflix or Fiverr. I don't know you heard of Fiverr. So I'll start you off with some easy questions before I get to the hard ones, okay? (laughs) Uh, Why is it important for organizations, whether they're for-profit organizations, there's some multinationals, then there's some smaller ones as well as small business. Why is UX important to consider when you're making strategic decisions? Yeah, so that's a good question. So if we don't talk a thing about international as another layer, so you just think about customer experience for your local markets, for example, you're not thinking about the cultural differences, just think about your your direct consumers or customers without knowing, understanding what they want or who they are, what they want, what is important to them. Like you possibly just kind of putting everything out there and see what works and what doesn't work, right? So a lot of companies now is kind of like, Okay, used to be business and technology focused, but then um, users come in to kind of, you have to find the balance between all these three elements. So UX in, in that sense is really important for, to kind of help know what your customers really want and need. So I, I used to use this metaphor that is like a cupcake. So getting the customer experience right is the base of the cupcake. And then, and then the toppings are like your international elements. So you have to give them more local experience. And that is kind of like the sprinkles you can put on or tweak that you can do to make them more localized experience. And that could be the content that you're providing them has to be different or your propositions packaging has to be different or maybe payment method has to be different, right? There are so many elements that you have to make sure. I recently read an article to talk about, to use another metaphor is like, if you don't know what your customers in different markets need and their environment. It's a bit like you just shoot as many arrows as possible and hoping one will will get into the center of the board. But if you know what they want, you can fit into the puzzles and then kind of provide them, make the right decisions to provide them the right experience they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that I find interesting out of what you shared and as I was thinking about it is, you know, looking at the international as a second layer and the UX as like a base layer, even like mission-based organizations, not-for-profits, or if you're in the United States, you could have many little different subgroups within that. The Northeast is very different than the Southwest, and they have their own preferences. And with technology, it makes it even more easy to make that customization. But people are also hoping for that sort of global, global, local approach to, to how they do things. So So really at the heart of it, customizing their experience to their needs is the base of the cupcake, which I really, really like. Okay, now for one of my weird questions. You said you were an engineer by background and you weren't sure how that translated, although I thought it might. How do you think an engineer's mind helps improve UX? Yeah, yeah, to be honest, when I say it's nothing to do with what we talk about, there is, because now I'm thinking back about my background, everything is actually the path to get to where I am. So yeah, mechanical engineering, I was a kind of a major in um, industrial engineering. So it's about 
So my dissertations for my undergraduate was about going to a factory because it's industry engineering. So working, going into a factory and looking at the production line and see how people fix it. You know, if there's a bottleneck and then you kind of calculate the timing of how many minutes or seconds each person well, I'm talking about like 18, 19 years ago. So, so that's how the factory works at the time. Not many like AI or robots helping out. So if you imagine like the production line, they have a lot of people in my dissertation was going into see to observe, to talk to the employees and to understand what their problems when they're trying to fit because they are doing things continuously, right? That they have to make sure the light flow very quickly. So the whole dissertation is about observing and talking to people to, and then to come up with a solutions to make the production lines quicker. So there's elements of understanding the customers, observing, interviewing them and looking at their environment. So at that time, there's, I didn't know I was, an, I was in Malaysia, so I'm from Malaysia originally. So at that time, I didn't even know there's such a thing of UX or I don't think that industry exists yet at the time anyway. So that is that. And then when you say about thinking, you're right. Because when I was engineer, I thought hmm, I'm very black and white <laughs> and, you know, like very mathematically and everything else. But actually those skills and those thinking is actually very useful. And plus I did a PhD in HCI, human computer instruction. So that kind of trained for three and a half years, trained my mind of thinking about research. What do I think and everything? So I think the two combinations kind of make me better in what I'm doing now. And plus, I'm a very curious person. So I keep asking why, even real life, like my friends is like, why you keep asking me why I don't know the answer? I just like, you don't need to have the answer. I just, I just ask why. I think all this kind of helped me in terms of my, my job and what I do. I think it's a really interesting takeaway in terms of being able to ask why especially as we get into like the second the second half of covid as things start changing you know your processes are going to change your systems are going to change and like having a leader to ask why are we doing it why are we doing it this way is it ultimately going to serve the customer going to be super important and and one of our team members chris richards who is also a mechanical engineer he looks at every company every organization as a factory as a machine that produces the widget what is the widget that we're producing? Are we producing it in the best way? Your customer is who wants the widget, or sometimes your customer is the widget, but we won't go there. So being able to understand all of that is super important. So let's say most of the people listening aren't mechanical engineers and they haven't written dissertations on, uh, on machine learning and all that. How can they, what are some two or three things that they can do to improve maybe more of a UX mindset, a customer focused mindset in their business, whether they are local or whether they are eyeing global growth? Yeah, I think curiosity is one of the things and not being stereotyping. So when I work with teams or companies in um, that different countries, very often they would say, oh, yeah, just, you know, they were thinking about launching another country. They were thinking about translation, right? Just translate everything. Then you will cover all the countries that speak that language. And that is enough to localize. So I think it's kind of changing the mindset. A lot of them is mindset, right? Being curious and open-minded about what you're going to find or what you know about things about that country. Don't make assumptions as well. Like a lot of people kind of stereotype and say, like, oh, I know that. Oh, yeah make general assumptions like, oh yeah, that country, like I've been there once and this is what they do and 
this will be how they do it. Or kind of say, oh, every English speaking will be the same, which is completely different. Like you say, America itself is a huge <laughs> pie to kind of put together anyway. So I think attitude and mentality is very, very important. And then secondly is to not settle to what you, you think you know already. Kind of like go into saying, okay, we think we know this. Are they hypothesis or assumptions or actually really they are the true? And if this is truth or, or reality, but how true is that? How much of that is valid point? So it's kind of going into look into validating it or kind of testing it or even sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So how you make sure you find that out as well. So sometimes I go into the company and I say, oh yeah, we have a bit of data here. We know this and but should we just make decision based on what we know? Some activities I sometimes do it with them is get everyone together or some data and everything inside whether this thing is relevant or not. Just put them together and then kind of do the exercise of which of them put in four buckets, which of them are facts. Like we, we know for facts because it's out there. Everyone knows that. And, and then which one are strong hypotheses. So we know it's true, but we might want to expand a bit more on that. And then the third one, third bucket probably is weak hypothesis. We think, or we heard someone say that in local sales team, but is that true? We don't know. Or is that their own opinion? We don't know. And then the fourth bucket is the unknown. Like we don't know what we don't know. So sometimes having that kind of exercise, it helps you to define, actually, we know quite a lot already. We could make some decisions slowly based on that bit. Or sometimes it's actually, we have a big gap. We don't really know anything. Let's look at how we learn about something. And there are so many other approaches that you can do to kind of help you to fill in those gaps and answer those questions. And one thing I really want to emphasize is it's not one-off exercise or one-off things. You learn about something. You will even let's say you do user research or you get data and, and, and all the approach that you use to gather information, you probably wouldn't know everything in one go about the whole country or the whole nation and their society how it works right so it's kind of like okay it's enough for you to make a base decisions and key decisions and what is next like you keep coming back and improve so your business can keep improving as well mm. oh that makes sense so curiosity mindset don't make assumptions and then test the hypothesis and then i really like your four-step framework for what do we know to be facts what do we have strong hypotheses? What do we have weak hypotheses and what are unknowns? And then using that sort of decision rubric to ultimately make better decisions as a team and to sort of test the assumptions as you go forward. Who owns UX? Like whose responsibility is UX in a, in a company? It should be everyone, really, because because. If you think about it, it's like we talk about the three big elements like users, business and technology, right? Like they have to link very closely together. So it can't be, say, the product people own the UX because the product they are going to create is going to be the interface people use, uh, users using. But then if you go to a market, your marketing strategy is actually is not very localized and or it doesn't then... No one is going to come to your product to use your very good UX <laughs> focused products, right? So if you think about a lot of companies have silo vertical teams, right? Maybe you're responsible for this department or you're responsible for these channels or whatever. But then UX and culturalizations, I call that, it should be the vert- a horizontal bar 
it, it should actually touch on every single teams as well. Otherwise, you are going to have very disconnected experience because customer come to you. They don't know actually you have different departments or anything. They won't say, okay, um, this bank actually they have a department on in the in the counter, but they have another department on ATM, the, the other department. They don't see it that way. They experience the whole brand as a whole. Mm. So it has to be sit within that. So a lot of ways that UX team uh, being embedded in, in uh, organizations could be they sit within every single team. There are a lot of different ways of organizations um, set up their organization. But the very most common one is they actually sit within every single department where they will come to them and link together. That is the ideal case, right? But a lot of the times that is a lot of companies are still doing things very silo. And that is why sometimes I go into the, the clients, even though one of the team actually come to me and then we do this research, we have this strategy. We always invite other teams to come in, to sit in or to involve, say, okay, these are the inside. This is what we know about this market and how they function and everything. So the main team actually have their insight and know what to do. But actually out of all these inside and, and that, what does that mean to every single team so the proposition team might say ah oh, that's interesting we did some research here but this is something we know we didn't know so that could help us in shaping our proposition um, strategy or shaping our marketing strategy or partnership like oh this is how people use things and we should partner, look into partner up with telco company or what company so it, it should be kind of go across different departments so i use the word holistic a lot for what i do because one is holistic in terms of understanding your customers and their context as a holistic view but also in the organization it should be holistic view as well for everyone to kind of be aligned and know how much that everyone knows the similar things about each country or each region they're actually in the market they're in as well yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that we haven't actually mentioned it yet, that for if, if you haven't Googled it, UX stands for user experience. I don't know if we explicitly talked about that. And so Chuy is mentioning is, you know, again, how your customer doesn't interact with one department. They interact with your entire organization. And how they see it is they only see everything. How you see it, because you're at the top, you're looking at the different teams. And one of the great memes of user experience, and I'm going to try to visualize this, actually, because you some of you can't see us, is sort of like a, a street that's on a 90 degree angle. So, you know, it goes straight and then it goes left. User experience is when they cut across the corner and they, and they take the angle. So anytime you walk down the street and you see like a, a path where people have stepped on the grass, that's user experience because it's the way they want to use it, not how the person who designed it wants to use it. So I think that's really cool. I really understand and appreciate the intersection between technology and user experience. And then, you know, being aware of like a disconnected experience between their, your client and yourself. So yeah. And everybody's job, but also at least on a per team level to be able to put that forward in your career. What are some big, like, aha moments or surprises that people had, you know, without giving anybody secret sauce away, without saying this company really screwed up here, but saying, I saw this when we investigated it from a UX perspective, it found that our hypothesis was way off. And then here's what we did. Any like cool case studies like that, that you'd be open to sharing? So yeah, there's this more big aha and smaller aha so smaller aha could be so um, recently we do a research and trying to understand the market the company is trying to grow their 
conversions in that countries and it's not growing very well. And the focus focus the students like 18 to 24, 25. So you will assume these people, this is a small aha, right? You assume all these people would be quite cost conscious and we did in Romania. So like cost conscious and also that they probably don't have credit cards because you need a lot of things to kind of you need to provide there's a, there's a money coming in and things like that to be able to apply for credit card. So I was, there are a lot of hypotheses about how they, what they need. Maybe they need alternative payment methods, like for example, e-wallet or things like that, that they might be able to do. But it turned out, it, 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 it turned out the small aha was actually they didn't, all of them actually use credit card, debit card, like they don't even need any other payment method. So the company could save a lot of money in implementing that because they were going to go for other options as well because think that might be a big thing for them to do as well. And also we're thinking about, oh, maybe free trials, which like maybe from one month to three months, they will be more likely. No, because this group actually won't likely to sign up for free trial until they know they are going to pay, then they take the free trial, which is not something that we thought they would be doing. And so yeah, a lot of all these different things that actually help to kind of define, save a lot of money, the company a lot of money to kind of launch all these different propositions and to that. So a bigger aha, so for example, this is maybe medium aha. <laughs> so when, like, for example, we went to Japan to do research for Asana, um, you know, Asana, the work management tool. So, you know, Asana, one of the key features was they actually, one of the key features that seems to be a, a lot of people in different countries like is the assigning tasks. So I can assign tasks to you and then I can, you can assign to other, to other people. But it's actually in Japan culture, um, it's actually rude to do that. You have to talk to someone first be, before you give them a task for different reasons. One is because you don't want them to feel embarrassed if they don't have time or if they actually don't have the skills to do it and you assign the task, they have to do it and then you embarrass them. So there's all these elements that actually we wouldn't thought that is the case. Uh, we know there's a culture, like very politeness culture and everything within the organized, within a Japanese organizations, but all these small elements that actually helps to kind of define, oh, okay, there's elements of conversations and email has to go happen first before you assign. So what does that mean? And they have to have consensus. Like everyone has to agree before they can make a decision in that country. Like what does that mean to Asana as a, as a products and how should they kind of change that in that element? So that's awesome. I mean, those are really, really great examples. So what I liked about the, the example in Romania is like, I look at it from an ROI. It's like, okay, we didn't have to invest in this extra technology. So maybe that costs us like say it was $50,000. Okay. So that's a good assumption to test. The other one is, you know, if we can reduce our customer lifecycle time, instead of it being three months, it's like one month. That's a lot of cash over the course of a year, two years, three years. And a lot of, you know, if they were going to sign up for it anyway, you know, these are like, they seem little to you. It was a little aha and it could be a little aha, but the impact financial impact of that little aha could be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars over a year. So it really shows that, that uh, desire to be, or the opportunity to be customer focused and really understand it. On that note, so Anthony, if I may kind of expand that a bit. So because 
few months ago, I was having conversations with um, someone who looked after their, their actually audio book company. So they wanted to know their Middle East Eastern market, like how actually do people perceive the products and everything. So, but the person who actually grew in that market really wanted to do more insights and say actually make decision based on well-founded you know, insights and, and understanding. Yeah. But the, the the senior management was saying like, but we did the face, we did actually just put X amount of money into Facebook um, in this market. And we see the people sign up for the, for 10% or whatever percentage. We can do the same for Middle Eastern market. It was just a wrong thinking. Like, you know, you could do that. And then kind of thinking, using the same thing in different markets, that is completely a wrong way to think about things as well yeah so yeah i just kind of want to like a lot of people were thinking okay what is the investment i think the thing is like did, i think the senior stakeholders were saying like so if we invest in this in research right and in understanding the customers and and their market and how it works how many percentage of increment we will get in conversions like it doesn't work like that no because there's a lot of things some of them actually instant and direct ROI that you can see, you invest on research, hence the ROI is saving you money on executing the payment method like we talk about. But some ROI is not as instant and direct for it because the insight will give you the things that you know about and then identify the things you don't know about. But then with that, we can identify the strategy and plans and how we can execute it. And then you have to go and action and execute those plans. So there are a lot of different things in within. If you have that research and you do nothing about it, then you won't get any ROI. (laughs) So there are a lot of different ROI levels. Uh, Some is more instant, but a lot of companies have a wrong thinking, thinking, if I get this, if I do this research understanding customer, I will get 10%, 12% of increment of my retention rate or sales or whatever. um, They they expect it to duplicate over. Do you ever watch cooking shows? like cooking, like championships, like comp- cooking competition yeah. shows. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I like watching Top Chef and uh, shout out Top Chef. They had this one challenge. We were talking about it last night at dinner. So funny that there was like a baking challenge, but they were in Colorado. And so the, normally they bake in a kitchen, you know, on the ground. They had to go to Colorado or somewhere like that. And it was a thousand meters or thousand miles up. And so because they were higher up, the lower altitude mean you had to change the whole recipe. And so it's like if the recipe is the same, but the location is different. And so you can't do the same things because the elements around it are going to be different. And that's it's such a stupid example, but it makes me think you can't duplicate it over because the elements are different. That is su- such a good example. I probably were going to use that in the future. <laughs> Please, you, I'll, say, I'll send you the episode. <laughs> But you're right, like because the context and environment change. So you can't expect to duplicate exactly the same thing, the same recipe. Like you say, your recipe is your business strategy. You can't just apply the same thing from Russia to Mexico to, you know, um, to Indonesia because the environment and the culture and everything is different. Even small things. I, I bet that ch- it, did someone just use the same things and then it just collapsed or, or what happened? <laughs> I think it grew too much because you need to use less leavener is what uh. my mother-in-law shared. So, well, I think it's, I, I have two other facts and then we'll sort of, or thoughts from what you shared and then we'll start to wrap up. One of them is the team UX. So you mentioned the cultural differences between, you know, a European culture or what have you in a, in a Japanese culture. 
But I think it's also really important to recognize that like, just because I have this conversation with this person, I won't be able to have the same conversation with that person. Or just because this team works this way, my sales team works this way, does not mean my operations or HR team works this way. So you can still take UX and apply it to teams. And then the other thing that made me think of that is the changing dynamics, like our work environment is changing. And I know typically you look at UX as in, hey, who is the customer who's going to pay for things? But ultimately, we have internal customers, we have stakeholders, and being able to adapt our strategy to maximize their experience is key. So just because something worked a year ago doesn't mean it's going to work in the future, whether that's your internal customers or external customers. Would you agree with that? Do you think that that's on point? Yeah, I agree completely with to a certain extent because there's another element I want to talk about about changes. So you talk about changes. Yeah, you are right. So some countries actually have changing quicker than others. So when I talk about culturalizations, I sometimes simplify it as three levels. One is that very basic level. You don't want to offense anyone and you don't want to do mistake on geopolitical issues or elements. Don't want to have icons that offend religions or whatever. So that's the basic level. And the second level is kind of like the elements that your customers would actually like to see, kind of like the right the right forms or how you use the forms and and you know the the sign of the currency or whatever things that you can tweak on your own. And then the third level is the behavioral elements that you can delight them to make them a better experience, local experience. So you talk about the changes. So I agree in some way that things were ch- things are changing, the world are changing. And last year I wrote an article during the pandemic is that, you know, a lot of people are panicking, especially at the beginning, like, oh, consumers are going to change like behaviors and then B2B, the cu- customer is going to change and the way they work and everything. What should we do? Everyone was panicking, trying to find a new strategy, which is true to a certain extent. But then sometimes it's good to step back as well to think about what is not going to change, Right. I'm not going to change the whole strategy, but then there's certain elements is not going to change because certain behaviors in the country is not going to change, likely to change. So I think Jeff um, Bezos have talked about, used this, everyone used this, and he was talking about people asking him about, oh, how do you maintain the changes and kind of keep up with the changes? And say, actually, what I would ask is, what would be the thing that won't change in the next 10 years and focus on that? So I think to certain elements, a lot of behavioral elements won't change in the countries, like the whole collectivism won't change, you know, how they interact with each other, how they see mentality, like in Indonesia or in, in Philippines or India, they have this sachet mindset. They only buy things that they want um, in a small package, like one cigarette or two clothes, and so that they don't waste money on that. So that kind of mentality is not going to change because of pandemic or because of flooding or anything like that. So kind of remember there are elements that don't change. Certain countries, for example, Russia, it changed quicker than others. So I remember we do research um, in, that, in that country and then we have strategy before launching in that market in, for that customer. And then six months later, we go back in. A lot of mentality changed. A lot of the ecosystem in terms of payment infrastructure change in that country. So some country will change quicker than the others, but most of the time, a lot of basic elements, they won't change as well. And what, and last point that you talked about earlier that I want to pick up is, yeah, when we say users, it could be a customer, it could be internal, it could be external, it could be anyone directly 
working with you or indirectly working with you. So for example, if there's a company, e-commerce company that they were saying, they were selling, you know, the, the trolley back that for kids to sit on. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it before. So they sell it in Russia and China and Japan and all these countries. And they keep talking about our customer, our users, our customers, other end, end users, which is the parents and the kids. But actually, I kind of reminded them, actually, your customer are also your salesperson or distributors in those countries because this, you actually selling to distributors and then they cannot help you to sell them. But the distributors also selling other people's product, which is similar to yours. Like how do you make your experience with them better so that they're actually more likely to sell yours and more, you know? So there are a lot of users that not necessarily are the users that use your products, but actually your customers that help you to build your business from throughout. Oh, I love that. I think it's- Yeah, I, I didn't forget any points. Yeah, that, was, that was pretty good. You weren't even taking like, notes. <laughs> I need to take notes to remember all the stuff, but I think that, that was really cool. A great summary of that, that you know, some things are going to stay the same and you can build your strategy that way. Some things are going to change very quickly and then really making sure you get all of the people that are involved in making your business better. And those are ultimately all customers. So it's a, a great perspective there. JJ, where can people get a hold of you? Where can people learn more about your work? Where can people get in touch? So my website is bayo.global. So B-E-Y-O-N dot global. And and can find me on Twitter, tree squared, like tree, tree, tree squared. <laughs> and um, on LinkedIn. So I'm quite active in LinkedIn as well. So yeah, and on my website, you can probably find a lot of my talks. And also I kind of started to provide something called Global Design Guide, which for different countries. So at the moment I have India, China, Japan, and Mexico. So in terms of the things that you have to pay attention to, from phones to payment method to social network um, for these countries as well. That's awesome. I'll definitely make sure we put links to that. And Chewy Squared on Twitter is going to be great. And really, it's been such a pleasure, Chewy Chewy. Thank you so much for sharing today. It's been a blast. And I look forward to sharing again very soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Folks, my guest today has been Chewy Chewy Tan, who is from Bayo Global, and she's the founder and director, and as you know, it's an international UX research firm. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like us and give us five stars on whatever podcast app you use. And if you have somebody who's trying to really drive their organization forward, make the best decisions for their customers, whoever their customers are, be sure to share this interview with Chewy Chewy, because I know they'll like it. So thank you again, Chewy Chewy for being our guest today. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and until next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's going to give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus, you can use the code podcast for $100 off. 
course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course, use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.